Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. Welcome along. This is Open Door Talks, your guide on how to move forward with your music. This week, we have a brilliant techno DJ, artist, producer, vocalist, Louisa. Louisa made a name for herself back on the underground scene in New York City as a teenager, and she's gone on to release some amazing records with the likes of Bromance, her album with He, She, They, and she also runs her own label, Ra. We talk about everything really from being kicked off the decks for not playing commercially enough to the importance of finding your why. We get into her prolific partnership with Maelstrom, her production and collaboration techniques, as well as working with Dave Pensado and why it's okay to get weird. I really, really enjoy chatting to Louisa. She shares some really valuable lessons and insights and I hope you enjoy it too. Hi Louisa, how are you? Hi Alex, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. How's things today? Things are great. Um, I had a, a riding lesson with my neighbor and bestie, Miss Kitten, this morning. <laughs> Which So now we're both incredibly sore because there was no, no we, we abandoned our stirrups. Um, so ha- happily exhausted. It's been a full day. <laughs> nice. Love that. And I'm a massive fan of Miss Kitten as well. So it's like nice that you guys live so close to each other. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today, all about your experiences in the music industry. Let's start off with where you're at today. How would you describe yourself as a person and a musician? Oh, <laughs> starting light, I see. Um, as a person in this moment, I don't know. It's, I feel like it's, it's changing often these days, but I would like to kind of maintain that I'm very thrilled to be alive. <laughs> and so kind of leading with gratitude. And as a musician, I, I, I think the thing that feels the closest right now is kind of like techno punk. Um, yeah. And then like, I've, I've kind of coined the, the, the genre name post alternative industrial pop. Um, and no one has picked up on that. So, so like it hasn't been repeated, but that's what I like to call the music I make. How did this music thing start for you? And how would you describe yourself as a youngster? So my dad was, uh, and I guess still is in the music industry and he was doing, um, he was producing music videos and he was, um, doing A&R for Sony and Columbia in like the seventies to the nineties. So as many like boomer dads, he's <laughs> not a very good emotional communicator. So most of our relationship is kind of based on, uh, our, our love of music and, you know, we used to go trade the promo CDs that he got sent for other CDs that we, as as a duo, wanted to listen to. Um, and he, you know, he like took me to see Nine Inch Nails when I was like 11, which is maybe a bad idea and probably <laughs> formed a lot of my personality today. And I mean, as, and as a, as a kid, I liked like, I think my first favorite band was like the B-52s and then swiftly graduated, like, as I kind of found my own path 
into like garbage and smashing pumpkins and nine inch nails. And my dad was working with the red hot chili peppers at one point. So I became a massive red hot chili peppers fan, which is like kind of hilarious, but also like, and I, I'd have no guilt in my pleasures, but if it, if I did have guilt, that would be my guilty pleasure. <laughs> so, and it gets kind of like progressed from there in terms of like, I um, had a kind of active and passionate knowledge of music as like, the thing that taught me how to be in my body and how to like be in the world and how to feel feelings. Um, and that, that's kind of still what it is for me today. So were you playing instruments as a kid? Were you performing? How did you kind of get into the creative side? Basically grew up taking guitar and piano lessons and, and singing in choirs and um, kind of ha like always had enormous performance anxiety and was kind of like a fucking nerd, like really, the things I liked were not that cool. <laughs> so when I discovered the things that I do consider cool today, but that like, were not popular amongst my peers at the time, um, it felt kind of like life altering. Like I could finally kind of see myself um, in those spaces or like at least an aspiration to be in those spaces. Cause it was like, I don't know, seemed more accessible than like guys playing blues who were like 80 years old, <laughs> you know? Um, so that was, I started playing guitar when I was like 13 and that was felt like a, a passionate calling, you know, just to like sit in your room by yourself for hours and like noodle. <laughs> um, and then around 17, I started going out and swiftly because of social anxiety and, uh, and the pretentious notion that I was better at music and had better music taste than everybody. <laughs> I slowly kind of infiltrated uh, the ability to be a DJ. <laughs> so at that stage, what do you think you were good at and what do you think you weren't so good at? I mean, I feel like I was good at um, like kind of investigating uh, contemporary music passionately. I feel like I was good at like I, I trusting my taste and um I think one of the more, more important parts of being a DJ is being a fan um, and like loving music and loving, I don't know, just like being kind of an evangelist for it. And I think that that was kind of <laughs> like my, my character from the start. Like if you love something, you want to share it. Um, and so good at that part. And then like in, kind of intimidated technically and then, um, like, so a friend taught me how to beat match and it felt like, I remember <laughs> he taught me by mixing Blue Monday and Can't Get You Out of My Head. And it was like, these are the same song, <laughs> um, on like really shitty CDJs, like, like a, like a Newmark CDJ mixer that had like two, two CD players. And like, you could adjust, there was like a crossfader and you could adjust tempo and volume, but it was like, <laughs> <laughs> a real piece of trash um and like and so kind of learned like this uh and I had like no furniture in my apartment because I was a drug addict but just had this like horrible cd cd mixer but no table and no chairs <laughs> so you, I would just practice by like sitting on the floor for hours in front of this horrible machine um that I eventually came with me to rehab much to much to the consternation of literally everyone else in rehab with me um and yeah I mean that was just kind of like this obsessive quality of like finding new music and like at the time it was like it, I mean 
stealing music from like LimeWire that would take like days to download <laughs> an MP3 <laughs> and and burning it to a, like a CD and then getting familiar with all of the CDs that you burned. Like I I can't I I started DJing around two thousand three to um, two thousand four and uh, like the technology was kind of in between at the time, so I was like kind of too cheap and too like I I couldn't afford turntables. I could afford this shitty new park <laughs> uh, CDJ and. So yeah, it was just like burn CDs. I remember like there was one version of LCD Sound Systems Tribulations that I had that had like a skip in the middle of it. And the trick was to like know where the skip was to like mix out of it <laughs> before. I mean, it wasn't even on the CD. It was on the track, which is amazing also. So just like this heart, like this Jurassic technology <laughs> version of, of, uh, of learning how to DJ in like the, the kind of trashy, like indie sleaze era. It was great. <laughs> learning with those like limitations actually I think makes you into much better technical DJ one would hope <laughs> what was your kind of first experience of actual DJing how did you get your first gig and what were you playing and what was it like so my friend Nico who was like not a DJ but also fancied himself like kind of a club rat and also like not to mention we were both wildly underage like would not be able to legally enter a bar for another like five years maybe like four to five years <laughs> we were out and about constantly being menaces with like fake IDs in New York city. And, um, and he like basically knew everybody because he was just incredibly uh, present <laughs> by which I mean, annoying. <laughs> and we kind of endeared ourselves to like bar managers to be like, give us a club night. <laughs> like They were like dumb enough to, or like annoyed enough to just be like, please shut up. Like, yes, you can do Tuesdays or something. And, um, and yeah, I, my first DJ gig was at a place called bar 11. And like the DJ booth was like up a metal ladder. Like that was like just hooks of metal, like in the wall. So it was a death trap and, um, had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Did not know how to like you. Cause like, unless you, this was before I, I purchased my own terrible equipment. Um, so unless you kind of, you know, had access to either a club space to practice in or your own equipment, like you would not familiarize yourself with the machines until you were literally in front of them performing for people. And the nice thing about New York City, or maybe the annoying part about that, about New York City at that time and like the bars in the Lower East Side and the East Village is that like no one knew what they were doing. <laughs> so like no one could really beat match. And there was a lot of kind of open format chaos happening, like people playing like the Smiths into Missy Elliott into Madonna. Like it was just like, like, uh, chaos so we just played songs that we liked and until people danced and like I remember one of the songs was Magic Dance by David Bowie and the Muppets <laughs> and it was a hit you know and like just that feeling of like I don't know watching people respond in real time to what you were doing uh with music felt like the best thing and especially because the DJ like the booth was so precarious and like literally kind of dangling above the dance floor. It was actually great because you could watch people dance with each other and they weren't paying attention to you really. So that was also like, it was a kind of a special time because it was <laughs> pre free of camera phones, everybody just <laughs> living their lives. It was great. Looking back now then, what do you think were the kind of key lessons that you learned back then that have served you well in your career? I think the why is maybe the most important part. Like, 
being very clear on like what my purpose is as a DJ and as a musician and that like getting to kind of watch people have an experience together um, is a really special position to be in to kind of orchestrate that moment. Um, so I try to kind of keep that in the forefront because I think like, so I, uh, I mean, maybe we'll get into this, but I got sober when I was 20. I started DJing when I was like 17, 18, got sober when I was 20. And then in order to kind of be, remain in club culture as a recovering cocaine addict, it was very important to get clear on why I was there. And it couldn't be to serve my ego and it couldn't be to kind of have vicarious pleasure of watching other drug addicts do their thing. Um, and so it had to be, I had to be very aware of like, what is, what is my purpose here? And like, do I love this because it's like the purest expression of love I can kind of like um, channel to a population or is it because like I want something like, like I'm trying to uh, feed my ego, you know, or play God. And um, so I think it kind of, it had to radically like my, my purpose and like why I was there had to radically shift uh, as it, because of getting sober. And that was actually a really good thing. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's also quite a mature way of looking at it at that age as well, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny looking back at it because like everybody in my life was like, "Can you please like literally choose any other job than DJing?" Like, I, we don't care. Like, be a race car driver. Like, be a stripper. Like, just don't be a DJ, please. Don't be a DJ because <laughs> they're like, you have like thirty days sober, <laughs> and all you want to do is like go back to the club, like. <laughs> stop um and i was really adamant about the fact that like this is my calling <laughs> this is my passion and so you know in order to kind of have that be the truth i had to kind of get very um have a lot of clarity for myself on like why do i feel so strongly about that and uh what is it that i love about this space and what is it that i think i can bring to it because if it's just like again a self-serving and then I don't think I would have lasted long either as a DJ or in recovery. Yeah, well, I'm very grateful that you did continue and you didn't listen to your <laughs> your friends and family. Me too. <laughs> so were you were you like full time in music then at this stage, or you know what was you know what else was going on in your life? And you know, because I know at some point you moved to to France, so I kind of want to get into that as well. So you know, what was going on, and then what what kind of instigated the move? I started around 2003, 2004. Uh, I got sober in. 2006. And around that time, I was like, trying to do too many things. <laughs> and then as it was like, I was like, interning uh, at, with this designer named Christian Joy, who was doing the Yaya Yaz costumes, which was very exciting and cool. And she's the fucking best. Like, what a great boss. Mm. <laughs> and I was trying to go to school and I was like showing horses competitively and uh, working at the Vice store, <laughs> which was like, of course I was. <laughs> um, and kind of as a result of getting sober, all of that had to stop. I got my butt like shipped across the country to California and um, had to kind of get some sober jobs in order to like figure out how to be a functioning adult person. <laughs> so that looked like um, working at a record store called Turntable Lab that was really great. They still have an online branch um, and, and that's where I met um, – my then DJ partner, DJ, DJ Gina Turner. And we got, you know, we like, it was really awesome to kind of build something with another woman. And she was the person that I would like, 
what did my first international gigs with. And she was a much more like aggressive hustler than I was. So it was very good to kind of have somebody who was like taking the reins in, in the kind of more social aspect because I was still incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable with that stuff. And then um, kind of, you know, doing money DJ stuff, like playing in hotel lobbies or, you know, doing like a, there was like a Vegas residency, but it was like only pool parties. <laughs> and it was like, not like hype pool parties, but like, like, can you just play like music for people to like sunbathe to, which I was yeah. very bad at, <laughs> but it like, but it honestly like saved my butt, you know, it kept me from having to get more of a, a, another career mm. essentially. And then, um, in 2013, so that kind of, that kind of work and some other production projects, um, and starting to kind of do vocals on other people's music kind of was going on during my time in Los Angeles from 2006 to 2013. And in 2013, I had met uh, Louis Brodinsky at a winter music conference uh, a few years prior. And um, he, we, we had collaborated on a track that never came out. <laughs> and then we, he asked me to do vocals on a song uh, and he wanted the title to be Let the Beat Control Your Body. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I wrote uh, a song with that as the hook and it ended up being a first single on a, on a label that he started called Bromance Records. Um, and that's basically Bromance. Um, the, his partner in the label was um, this man, Manu Baron, who was based in France. And he had, you know, they, as part of his company called Savoir Faire, they had management, booking agent, publishing, record label, and owned a bunch of clubs in Paris. And he was basically like, look, if you move to France, <laughs> we can do something like we can build with you. But if you stay in LA, there's a nine hour time difference. We can't really do anything. So your call. And I moved to France like a month after that email and, uh, and he's still here like 10, 10 years later. Amazing to have the opportunity and just to be able to jump on it, literally jump on a plane and make the move. Sheer luck. I mean, honestly, like, because I think at that point I was, you know, kind of what occurred prior to that is that that was February of 2013 and the, the New Year's Eve 2013 or 2012 to 2013, I was playing in, in South Beach in Miami and I got kicked off <laughs> because I wasn't playing commercially enough. And I like was playing all vinyl at this point. It was just like, what do you want me to do? I only have the records that I have. Like, and they were like, we'll bring our resident. <laughs> And they're like, you're not a party starter, like go away. And I remember like I got in a, like a, an, like a screaming fight with the promoter and like was crying. <laughs> and then like, you know, a couple days after that went down, somebody off, like offers me this kind of opportunity. And it made the choice very clear and very simple because it was very obvious that my music was not working in the American electronic music landscape. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't going well. <laughs> Mm. Um, but there was something that like I was actually more fitted for and um, it really like that transformed my life and my career in a, in a really big way and it was a lot of luck and a lot of you know just like I think taking bigger and bigger steps into what and this is kind of a theme like into my tr what I really wanted to do and what kind of my true passion was which is essentially like be a front woman of a band. <laughs> it's like the secret, the secret dream um, 
like was moving in that direction as opposed to kind of being just a DJ or just singing on other people's songs. And so that kind of was a big, like being able to be a songwriter and a vocalist um, and collaborate in a more meaningful way. Um, it, it really, and, and getting kind of positively reinforced for that was a big deal, you know? Hmm. At what point did you, had you realized that as a youngster that that was your, you know, the big dream? <laughs> I mean, I think like forever. I mean, since I was like 11, <laughs> like I was really, really obsessed with like wanting to be as much like Shirley Manson as humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and kind of from that wormhole, like, I think like the part of the, be the beauty of being a music fan is getting to kind of go down the history of your favorite artists, favorite artists, and kind of like learning in this kind of almost like spider web of information of like, well, via garbage, I learned about the pretenders and Patti Smith and Susie and the Banshees and, and, you know, kind of like developing a, a, an encyclopedia of your own things that you love, you know, and I think that that was like, always the archetype that I had always been drawn to, but had never had the guts to kind of step into until more recently. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it, it's been a very long journey from that, that place to, to this one. But I feel like the more experience I have, like the more honest I can be with like what I'm here for, you know? And it also sounds like you were really putting in the groundwork. Obviously, you were already at that point, you were cutting vocals for other artists and you were going to places like, you know, Winter Music Conference in Miami. Well, it sounds like you were doing some groundwork, even if not consciously, but you were kind of going out there, meeting people, talking to the right people and getting to know people that would obviously serve you then for future years. Oh, I mean, for sure. And I think that also, I think a community building aspect is really important. Like this, this moment in at least North American musical uh, history was very like, it was, it was the kind of blog house era. And so it was really communal because it was just kind of the beginning of people like being on forums and like nerding out over the idea that we could share music so easily. And like Serato had recently kind of been developed, like literally while I was in, <laughs> in rehab, I come out and there's like a new DJ technology that made it very easy to kind of club test new material in a way that had never been possible mm. before, you know? So just, it was, um, it was a really exciting time, like in terms of the, the access and community building and like kind of global network of people who are in a similar place doing a similar thing. And that was like, it was great to be in Los Angeles at the time too, because there was kind of a love connection between LA and Paris. For sure. So yeah. So you jump on a plane, head over to Paris what happens next? So like I drop my stuff in Paris and then I get, get on a train to Nantes because Louis Burdinsky also had the, um, the intuition that I it would be a positive collaboration between myself and Maelstrom. Um, so I go to his home, like a foreign exchange student we had never met before. We'd exchanged some emails and some like some ideas. And then we um, put together a two song EP that was my first EP for romance in, uh, in about four days. Cause I'd been submitting tracks for like, I don't know, almost a year probably. And it just wasn't clicking. And, uh, with him, it really, it really, I don't know. We, we come from very different places. Like he's a very much like in the kind of free party, like, uh, yeah, like rave scene in, in France. And I was coming from a kind of indie, indie rock, like blog house club, <laughs> North American background. And, um, and it was very swiftly, I think we shared a lot of ideals and a lot of um, tastes musically and, 
yeah, it was just, it was like the easiest and kind of most intuitive moment of, of music making. It was really special to, to get to work with him. And then kind of what transpired is that like, we ended up starting our own label together, probably like four years after that. (laughs) And, uh, I don't just, it's like, it was such a, a gift to be able to kind of have that connection made and, and everything that's come from it. So long story short, <laughs> long story short, yeah. France is great. It kind <laughs> of worked Mile. out. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, yeah, it kind of worked out. <laughs> Here we are. What I'm fascinated by is because, yeah, your relationship with Maelstrom is, I would say, nothing short of prolific. The amount of records that you guys have made together oh. and the consistency <laughs> and everything else it is really, really impressive. What would you say is the secret you know can you define it you know because it seems to have been right from the from right from when you met you seem to hit it off musically and that's a relationship that has continued and continued you know that's over 10 years now isn't it so can you speak to that and you know tell me why that might why you think that is has been so successful yeah yeah of course um and thank you for saying that because it's um it's one of the things I'm like proudest of is like kind of not, not our collaboration so much, but like our relationship. <laughs> Cause I think it's really built on like mutual trust and respect and that I, you know, I feel safe kind of trying new things and, and showing him ideas because I trust that he'll tell me if it's like, not, not it, but also that like, if it is it, then he will be able to kind of meet me there and, we, we have really different skill sets and we have really different backgrounds, but they turn out to be very complimentary because I can do the things that he can't and he can do the things that I can't. And, and also like in terms of our temperaments, I think um, we, we do a good job of kind of balancing each other out because he's, um, I don't know, like kind of radical, but in a really um, sane and, like honest and respectful way. And I, I very much admire that. Like he has excellent boundaries <laughs> and uh, is a good communicator. And I think all of that, and I try and do the same. And I think all of that stuff, like it's not so much what happens when we get in the studio together, although that is like, I can't really account for that. You know, that's like, that's magic. <laughs> or at least it feels, it feels like it. It's more like everything that goes into the building the relationship so that when we get into the studio, there's like no baggage. It can be a lot of trust and it can be kind of play and joy and um, experimentation and yeah, a lot of freedom that we give each other. So yeah, it's, I don't know. It's um, especially cause we just, we, we just released our first collaborative album. And so we've been kind of preparing like last week we were in, in Nantes preparing his, preparing the like live aspect of that. And like looking back and kind of building on where we've come from together. And it's like, (laughs) we fucking did it. (laughs) You know, like so many times people would tell us like, can you like, can you play a little bit more commercially? Can you like make a a more, can you make a hit? (laughs) We'd be like, no. (laughs) I mean, we'd try and fail utterly. So we kind of like, as he puts it, like we built a house, we built our label to be able to release the shit that no one else wanted. And like, it worked out like there's a market for the weird shit mm. <laughs> and, and like it, it wouldn't exist if we kept trying to kind of fit into something that other people wanted from us that, that wasn't our, you know, our most honest. Yeah. The synergy just seems, yeah, it's kind of, it's just amazing. The synergy you guys have got 
and long may it continue. I'm really excited. I'm going to talk to you about the live element of what you're doing coming up. Can you just tell me about the method that you guys have? Like, is there one way that you guys make music together? Do you guys have a formula? How does it work when you're actually in the studio? Um, like, well, often we'll send each other like kind of sketches or ideas. Usually he starts and he'll send me a kind of a bare bones, like one or two minute loop of an instrumental. And then I'll kind of write to that and then send him back vocals. And we, if we can work remotely because we've always been in different cities, but um, more, we'll try and do kind of a, a week long or residency a couple times a year where we just, the goal when we're in the same room is to never do the same process <laughs> more than once, because I think it's our understanding that the, the process itself is an important element of the art as the final product. And so like, whether it's just recording a bunch of like vocal samples or noise samples and like that being the only sounds that we use in the track. I mean, he has a quite kind of specific setup, but I feel like together we encourage each other's freedom and to kind of like take it farther. So the longer we work together, the more ways of making music <laughs> there are. Um, and usually like a specific body of work will have kind of a methodology around it. And then for the next next time we have to switch it up and it will often be, it's more, it's like an art practice. <laughs> so often we'll like work in the morning and then we'll eat lunch together and then I'll go for a walk and I'll have to write the song during the walk after lunch and then come back and record in the afternoon. And like, so it's kind of, it has to be immediate. Like there has to kind of be some kind of urgency about it. And, and I think that that's very like, it's different than most of my other uh, collaborations because it's a, it's, the longest and like the kind of the most work, but also it's just, uh, it, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it's like going to like orienteering camp where you have to just do a bunch of trust falls, <laughs> and, like exercises about like being lost in the forest together. And it's the best. How do you create that urgency? Like, yeah, because yeah, there's also this kind of level of consistency that you guys have. Are there lots of tracks that you make that don't ever see the light of day or do you release everything? No. Do you release everything that you make or, you know, what, what's that process of actually finishing the music as well? I think we do as much of the kind of writing aspect in real time together. And if a song, like, if something's not working, it's not working, but like, we know each other well enough. I think over time we've gotten better at being like, I like this, I don't like this. Like, let's not focus on the things that we don't like. Because <laughs> like, why? Um, so there's not a lot of like hanging, hanging up. And the things that aren't like we, we both are kind of, at least in this relationship, it's more about mistakeism. It's kind of about letting the urgency create its own kind of stylistic like aesthetics. And so what that what that looks like ultimately is that it like the label's motto is techno for punks and punk for techno heads. Like it's a very kind of like off the cuff kind of punk ethos that drives the project forward and as long as like as i think like preciousness and like neurosis are our enemies like we have no time for that shit <laughs> and like if one of them if one of us gets stuck on it then the other person kind of drags them out and is like let's keep it moving so that's very helpful to have somebody to kind of not let you get bogged down with your own desire for perfection because like i don't know perfect is boring <laughs> we're both like ah. Have you both always had that ethos when you're working together or is that something that you've like learned over the years? When, when we first met, like that first session together, 
uh, we were both surprised at how easy it was. And then I, I also was kind of coming from a place of like really wanting to prove myself. It was really like, terrifying <laughs> moving to France, not knowing how to speak French, like arriving at a stranger's doorstep, being like with his family, like, <laughs> like please, <laughs> please take me in. <laughs> um, and so there was like a desire to kind of impress or prove something or, you know, get this, get the EP signed because like I, I had had so much rejection. <laughs> coming to that point. Mm. Um, so I think that I can hear it now when I listen to those older tracks, that it's much more kind of uh, like, it's really funny now that we're preparing this new live, <laughs> like we've updated all of the, all of the tracks kind of released probably before 2016 into like ferocious bangers. They're all now like 140 BPM. They're just like a slant, like, like they're greasy, like fatty, like massive. And like, now I'm just screaming the entire time. Whereas before it was like, really like techno voice, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and now I look, look back and I'm like, this is so silly. Like I was so scared, you know? And so it feels really good to kind of be like, wow, we've come a long way. <laughs> like, I have compassion for that that person who was so scared, and I'm glad that I'm no longer so scared. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. What do you think it is that has helped you come out of that fear? Mm, I mean, validation. <laughs> I mean, a validation and also, like, I don't know, at a certain point, especially post-COVID, but, like, a little bit prior to that also, I um, I, I feel like you know, the goal is always kind of as as honest and authentic as we can make it. And it felt like I had been trying to kind of hide a lot of the deeper meanings of songs within kind of like dance floor tropes. Um, and I felt like having kind of gotten positive feedback for that, it was appropriate, like appropriate to keep taking it farther. <laughs> mm. um, and I laugh because like, you know, I was, I was saying that prior to this conversation, we were working on like on a deadline for, you know, a song that we had to make in like essentially like five hours. Um, and it's supposed to be commercial. <laughs> and one of the lines is like roar smiling into the void. <laughs> and it's just like getting bold enough to be like, say it how it is. Like stop pretending you're talking about something that's nice when you're not. <laughs> And I don't know, I feel very grateful to kind of have been, haven't gotten positive responses enough to keep doing that, you know, because like, I might have lost some people along the way, but that's okay. Like, fine. <laughs> like, I'm not basically like, I, I don't think my authenticity is like, like, it's okay. If, if I get to be authentic, and a few people are like, I'm not into that, then like, they can fuck off. <laughs> You know, and again, like this is easy to say in France, which is a culture that like you have DJ unemployment, essentially, like it, it there is a great amount of cultural privilege of getting to be part of a country that subsidizes the arts in such a way and that you can kind of make anti-commercial choices. But at the same time, like, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to kind of have have gotten over the desire to please an audience. <laughs> I relate to that. It takes time to kind of have the confidence to do that. And it's OK to for people not to like your music and if anything that's kind of it's better to strive for people not to like it so you can find out who likes it is that something you found as well yeah I mean there's this I remember I think about this a lot actually maybe like <laughs> maybe too much but there's this like video interview of David Bowie being like if you if you like 
if you're if you're playing to the gallery and if you feel safe like you're not going far enough like keep waiting keep waiting out into the water and i think about this idea of like am i waiting deeper today you know like cuz i especially i'm 37 years old you know i've been doing this since i was like 17 18 <laughs> like it's been a minute so being able to kind of um grow in courage i like if you don't want to do that that's cool like be an entertainer the world needs entertainers for sure but i'm not that good of an entertainer <laughs> mm -hmm. so i better make some fucking art you know mm. like i better make it true you know what would you say to someone is at their the earlier stages of their career and they want to make art they don't want to be an entertainer but maybe they don't have the experience or the following or the confidence to really show that self-expression um i would say you know like you can try like if if i think it's a good exercise it's a healthy creative exercise to try and make a hit and this is this can also be the thing that gets you in the door you know the aforementioned let the beat control your body got me in the door in a lot of places that uh, that like then allowed me to have a career <laughs> you know um and that if you don't want a life where your career is based on people liking what you do <laughs> or like i guess playing to the gallery again like kind of creating something to to please people right it's okay if they like it but like if you're making it for them to like it maybe that's <laughs> that that's a it's a different thing you know um so like so i would say that like it's okay to fuck it up. Like, it's okay to get weird. I mean, we've done this demolition panel a few times at ADE. Uh, and that's always a pleasure because people kind of submit their demos and then they have a panel reviewing them and giving constructive criticism and feedback. And the feedback is always like, get weirder, like be more yourself because everything sounds the same. You know, it can, or, or, there's the dangerous potential when everybody has the most incredible, like suite of tools at their fingertips that you can do a lot and sound amazing, but sound exactly like everybody else. So like the thing that makes things stand out is like, how weird can you get? Like how much can, like how far can you take it? Like it's not the hookiest thing. It's like the most kind of unique and special and like strange thing that tends to at least catch, catch my ear, you know? And I think that that's kind of also what I'm trying to access in making stuff. So as a vocalist, obviously you said you're sending files back and forth. What's your tech setup at home and how do you work by yourself when you're collaborating? So I basically, I think it's more process-based. Like, honestly, I, <laughs> we were like laughing about it the other day because you can tell which songs were recorded like under a blanket into the computer mm. mic <laughs> and like, and no shade, you know, that it's a, it's a great, it's a, it's a great life. Um, so I have this legendary podcast mic what is it the sure sm7b um with a little pop filter and a little preamp <laughs> thank you toman fr um and an apogee one <laughs> that uh a friend gave me that's like very old school it's like they don't even make this model anymore mm. the new one is much sexier and i record into logic and then 
I personally like to use a lot of guitar effects <laughs> on my voice. Mm. So if I have the option, that's what I'm doing. Like that's um, kind of the the vocal chain that I like to go through is is mostly guitar effects. But that's because I'm like really bad at mixing my own material and make somebody else do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think finding a setup that you're comfortable with, but it's really like I, for a long time, I was very anxious about the technology side. I just felt like out of my depth, like I didn't know anything like I, you know, the number of cables necessary intimidated me, like all of it was just like too much. And so it probably took like, uh, like 12 to 15 years of like being a recording industry professional before I got like a proper mic set up. I mean, come on. I was recording through like a terrible USB mic for a while. So I would say that like, especially if your goal is songwriting and and if your goal is being weird, <laughs> that it's like the more that you write and the more that you record, regardless of what you're recording and writing on, like the better. So if you're waiting to like make songs until you have the perfect setup, like that's the mistake, you know, like do what you got to do. Mm. Um, and if you need help, like ask people if they want to collaborate because the nice thing about dance music <laughs> is that there's not a ton of songwriters. Um, mm. There's a lot of great producers who need songwriters. And so I definitely found that like having a, having and honing a skill set that I was good at was a better use of my time and energy and um, kind of creative input than trying to get really good at, you know, things that I was not really interested in, kind of intimidated by, and um, that other people could do much better. <laughs> mm. So how would you say you have honed your skills as a singer and a songwriter? Um, so there's a process. <laughs> there's like, for me, I do, if, if you're unaware and if this is something of note, it's actually, I think, very helpful for any creative individual or professional, but I've there's this thing called The Artist's Way. It's a book by Julia Cameron. <laughs> it was written like 30 years ago. And it's basically kind of a series of um, exercises and like rituals almost, like a creative practices to help you keep your knives as sharp as possible creatively. I don't, are you familiar with the artist? I way? am. Yeah. It's a 12 weeks. Right. There's 12 chapters and now you're supposed to do it over 12 Perfect. weeks and you're supposed exactly. to do it in a group. Yeah. Yes. You can do yep. it in a group. You can do it solo. So for me, the, the morning pages is really important. That's just like three long hand, hand pages every day, no matter what. Absolutely. And game um, changer, right? We all game, game changer. changer. <laughs> Thank you, Alex, for, mm -hmm. for seconding the, the morning pages is like yeah, a life, huge. a life altering practice. Really is, so yeah. for me, the, writing every day is important. So writing the morning pages, if there's something particular, if the song comes out in the morning pages, I transfer it immediately to a secret Tumblr. <laughs> so it's accessible on my phone because if you do morning pages every day, then it's easily going to get lost in the kind of melee. You're going to be like, which notebook was that? Or what page was it? So transferring quickly, the information is, I think, a very important part of being able to organize a creative life. And then also I have a kind of running note on my phone in case things come up and voice notes on my phone in case things come up, like while I'm in the middle of stuff and don't have access to my blog, I will just auto dictate <laughs> into the phone. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, I think you don't know if you're going to have the idea again, you know, you don't know if it's going to stay, you don't know if it's going to come back. So like the best practice, at least in, in my case, who has a terrible mem memory and like is easily distracted is just to like get it down while you can. Um, because like 
you don't know when the, you're, the muse is going to visit you. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, so to, to kind of have a daily practice is really important. And then kind of from there, uh, yeah, be able to organize your output. Very important. And um, yeah, I guess to like, there's this very helpful John Cage I guess it's attributed to John Cage. I'm not sure who it's by, but it's like 10 commandments of an artist. And it's like, one of them is do not create and analyze at the same time. Hmm. And I try and think about that often. Um, because if I get too kind of in my head about the self-critical part and like try and make it like, again, too perfect, like it really, it really stops up the flow. And so the goal is to kind of continue to flow forward. And if you need to change it after, or if you're like, I don't know about that part, then like, cool, but don't do, don't do the analysis part while you're making it. And certainly don't ask for input <laughs> until you're ready to actually receive feedback because it's such a tender thing, you know? The advice I got was to separate it into the creator mind and the editor mind and do that away from the DAW. So obviously you're, you're making music and being creative and having fun and being playful, and then you can bounce it out as a file and then not in the DAW, you're listening to it either in headphones or in a different environment. And then you can be the editor, you can make your notes. And it's best to do that three days, at least three days after you've made the record or you know, made the idea. And in that creative mind, it's very similar to the morning pages where you're just free writing. You're, free, you're making music freely without any judgment of style or quality or reverbs on a kick drum or anything like that. Not that you put reverb on a kick drum, but you know what I mean? It's just like super free and playful. And then you can come and be the judge and be the editor after that. Totally. And also I think that that play space is really like, it's paramount because it's where some really good and interesting and innovative ideas of doing like what you're not supposed to be doing, <laughs> like using distortion as an instrument, for example, um, start to be more like it, you can get some really cool and unique and special kind of moments in that. Like I recently, I, I think also that in terms of the, it's it, the kind of creative practice and setup. Like it's, I think it is great to work with others and to be able to kind of learn how other people access that space because it can be different for everyone. It can be such a beautiful thing to kind of like watch somebody in that zone and then kind of support it and, and play with it back and forth. I, I recently had a, a session here um, with a producer called La Fraîcheur and she is really good. Her, her, um, like practice is to kind of record a bunch of audio and then slice it, slice up the good parts and then like kind of almost meditatively, like put them together in ways until something kind of fits like a feeling that she's going for. It's like, it's almost like a, I don't know, it's like a moving meditation. And it was, it, mm -hmm. I feel so excited about what we made. Cause like every sound was either breath or guitar. And it sounds like a dance track. Like it doesn't sound like, and like avant-garde, <laughs> like, I don't know, like art rock thing, you know? And I, I was just so impressed by like, oh man, like I had no idea that's how you were working. And like, now I can see it in her production, but like, I would have had no idea, you know? So it can be such a helpful thing to be like, wow, how do other people kind of access that space, especially given the tech, our own technical limitations, you know? Cause we all have like fortes and things that we're really comfortable with and our go-to tools. And then we all have things that we're like, ah, I don't like that. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do that. Mm. Um, and it can be such a fun and, and like enriching process to, to play with other people like that. It really, really is. 
So, I mean, speaking about playing with other people and obviously going to your album, I did notice some of the credits. You've got a really, fun, a really great group of people work, who worked on the album with you, specifically Den uh, Dave Pensado, who was the mixing engineer. Is that right? Yes. Uncle Dave. <laughs> did you get to work with him directly? Or, you know, I'm really interested to know what you learned from that experience about you making the album and, you know, what you learned from Dave. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with Dave. Dave is like, <laughs> he's the best. I mean, just as a human being, so delighted and impressed by Mr. Dave Pensato. And so basically he had worked with uh, Vice Cooler who produced and co-wrote the record on uh, a few things, including the Peaches album, uh, Rub. And he, he, I, one thing I really like about mixing engineers generally, especially people working at that level, but um, Dave specifically, he's like really excited to work on new things because it gives him a new skill set. And like, I think, you know, especially like the stories he tells are totally insane. He's like, this one time, Christina Aguilera. And you're like, what? <laughs> what, Dave? And he's like, oh, Beyonce. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> like, uh, so you're kind of here, all of these insane stories, but at the same time, like his... He's so um, a knowledgeable about you know kind of specific ways to make something sound better, but also at the same time, like aside from the technical, he's really into preserving the character and the nature of the music. So for us, he was like, we just gotta we have to we have to keep the chaos. <laughs> Which I was like, you you see me, <laughs> mm. um, and so it was really cool to kind of like watch him like we 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 essentially sat for most of the record in session while he was mixing and he would be like this or this he would a b and he would a b sounds and like i don't know there's a certain um sensitivity to like what sounds better versus like what is better for the song for what the song is trying to say and for kind of like the feeling that you want to get when you listen to it and i I, as a basically, like, I'm so bad at, at, I mean, I play like 128 kilobytes per second, like <laughs> YouTube rips because I'm like, this song bangs and I don't know where else to find it. You know, like my taste for sound quality is really atrocious as literally anybody who has ever DJed with me back to back <laughs> will attest. Um, but I think that have to work with a mixing engineer who's so, um, who, who knows the rules so well that he can actually like kind of go around them to serve the music is something that is like a, a, a beautiful process. And also like shout out to his amazing assistant engineers. Cause they were really, really helpful also. And like did us a ton of amazing favors by, you know, sending us stems for the live. And, you know, I think like it does take a village when you're working at that level, just to keep everything organized and to kind of, um, the the idea that there's a certain pedagogy of mixing engineers that like assistants kind of come in for a year and learn how to do this at this level and then kind of start on their own careers is very beautiful like you don't see that many apprenticeships you know out of like outside of like tattoo artists <laughs> and often i feel like those are like abusive situations yeah. so to kind of have like a like a crew <laughs> of of young engineers who are like you know, learning so much from such a such a, a boss in, in, in such a, like a loving environment is really great. Obviously, playing live is a key part of your musical expression. So how did you ensure that the music really translated when you played it live? Um, so 
basically, uh, there was a bunch of stages to that. Um, we, we were working with, so we, the live band itself is a, is a three person setup. And then we often travel with sound and lights, always sound, sometimes lights, usually ideally lights and sometimes a tour manager. Um, and so we got sent all of the drum sound, uh, the, the drum sounds, uh, so we could resample them and put them on, uh, a SPD trigger. Um, so our drummer could play a mixture of live drums and, uh, trig drums. And then we sent, uh, then we got the stems, the non drum sent stems sent to, um, the usually Milestrom, occasionally our friend Nico. We have everybody in the band has a double except for me because everybody has like nine different projects. Um, and so we s have the stems coming from the computer um, and everything. The light show is clocked to the computer. Um, and then the vocal, <laughs> the, the vocals are uh, also running through the sound guy's computer. So, cause they're quite, heavily affected also and then there's like one there we have a single button <laughs> for that which is just like the kill switch because there's so much distortion that if there starts to be a feedback issue we can just kill it um <laughs> and and basically we took the original stems from those mixing sessions with uh pensado and friends um and we uh Re, re recalibrated everything with our sound guy so that it would sound good in balance with the live drums and how they're mic'd and then also the live vocal and how that's mic'd. Um, and so it was quite like in order to have a, sh a show that mixes live drums and electronic drums and electronic like computer stems, I think it, it was really important that the show sounded really good because otherwise why would we have spent like a buttload of money getting Dave Pensado to mix the record? Um, so it was, it was important for us to kind of like work both in terms of the mix on the record and then the mix in the live space, um, to get it to kind of calibrate to what it, we wanted it to sound like. So in fact, hopefully it sounds even bigger live, but yeah, so it was definitely something that we were thinking hard about because, uh, it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It, sound, it just sounds like a really quite a complicated process, doesn't it? Because yeah, obviously the album is the thing that's going to live on platforms and it's going to, you know, be there forever. But the live environment is an experience that your people are paying for and you really want to leave them with the best night of their, you know, one of the best nights of their lives and, and, and to be able to express all of those emotions that you put into making the record, you want to be able to express that when you're actually playing it. So it's almost as I hear it as a, now, from what I know about music production and engineering, it's really about, it's almost like making two versions of the same album, isn't it? To make sure it, it really does translate. Yes. And I mean, we put out like free, I mean, pay what you want, download on Bandcamp of our show at ADE. And you can actually hear our wonderful sound guy, uh, Seb Lorho, kind of calibrate to the room. Like the first three song, three songs are a little bit hot. And then he kind of, you can hear him adjust in real time to to what the room was sounding like. And I think it's like, I, it's honestly the live show is like the great the greatest accomplishment of my life <laughs> and because it took a village and it kind of introduced us to so many people that are so wonderful and so good at their jobs and like kind and generous and gave so much time and energy and love to this project that like I don't know it's it's uh it's I feel so unbelievably grateful to work with such amazing people like who who care about this project it's a fucking miracle <laughs>
was it easy to let go of certain decisions? Were you were you really kind of how did it work from your side as the, as the artist? Were you kind of really kind of controlling it, or did you kind of just let people get on with it? And then, you know, really interested in that process. I mean, I trust that anybody who I'm working with, uh, and namely like our our drummer Bertrand James, who's now like working on other projects with other band members, <laughs> like it's it becomes kind of an incestuous family in terms of like musical projects, which is great, ideal, you know, because you want everybody to feel inspired and excited to work together. Um, but that he brought in our first sound guy, Mathieu Fisson, who eventually had a child. So he brought in his teacher, Seb Lorho. And it was just like this idea, like basically I had, to answer your question, I had faith that everybody who we were working with is better at their jobs than I'm at their jobs so they can do their jobs, <laughs> you know, like, and I, and they, everybody is like, I unbelievably impressed and grateful for the team that we have behind this project. I hope we get to do it again. <laughs> And you mentioned, you mentioned certainly in the earlier days of your career, there you know you had a, there was a bunch of rejection, there were no's, you know you were making, you know sending bromance records for a year, and you know you weren't getting anywhere. What do you think it was about you that that really helped you carry on and really continue? You know, because I think a lot of people when they're getting rejection and they're hearing no can really really have an impact on their on their ego, I guess, and on their personality. And lots of people will, you know, maybe think oh maybe it's not for me what do you think it is about you that helped you continue along the path and and really reach the heights that you've got to um I have no other useful skill sets (laughs) just kidding um I mean I think like honestly a lot of my heroes had similar levels of rejection (laughs) like if we hear about um you know, the early Nine Inch Nails record deals and like how fucking mean they were, (laughs) Um, you know, and and hearing artists, like hearing my heroes express their their own doubt in the journey was very helpful to be like, just because you're getting rejected doesn't mean that it's not worth doing, you know? Hmm. Um, Because like, I don't know. (laughs) Also, I think, there's something that's very helpful about having kind of a punk ethos for the whole thing, even though, you know, at this stage in dance music, I think like fully DIY endeavors are are quite challenging. So it's, it's good to have kind of a a team that can help support your work, but in order to get to that place, like there will be an enormous amount of rejection. And, but I mean, I don't know, in AA, we say like rejection, rejection is God's protection that like, if it's not, if it's not for you, it's not for you. And that's great. Mm. (laughs) So kind of, I don't know. I I have faith in not so much myself, but in, in what I'm driven to make. Um, and I think it's my job to be a channel for that and to be a good steward of it. So don't give up kids. <laughs> yeah. Don't give up. It's really important. I think, cause you need, you actually need the no's to get to the yeses. And I think that's something that's maybe overlooked oh, absolutely. Uh, a lot because it can feel really personal when you get a no or a rejection and, and lots of people just go right f you i don't want to be you know you know i can do whatever but it can you know especially if you get more than one no it can it can take its toll on people and i think it's really important to oh my god i mean presently i've spent like nine months emailing american agents as an american (laughs) and like the industry is just not like everyone's overwhelmed everyone has too much work like this my music is not particularly commercial will not probably make them a lot of money (laughs) and like 
it's painful. My ego is bruised as a result, but like, I'll keep trying because it's like, I, it's Anglophone music. And I think it does have a market, but this idea of like that you, so at some point in your career, you're going to get like done with getting rejected on some level. Like, no, it never ends. It's okay. <laughs> Deal. Ça va. You're good. Yeah. I love. And like, if you can't join them, beat them. <laughs> Has it always been like that then for you? Because it sounds like you kind of, although it does, you kind of laugh it off a little bit. Has it always been like that? Or have there been moments where you've kind of been like, oh, I can't do this anymore? I mean, I don't know. I was like retraining to be a therapist mid-COVID. <laughs> um, but like then gigs started up again. So there was no time. <laughs> um, mm. I don't know. I mean, I think like it's very helpful to to remember that this whole thing, like to get to do this is a stupid gift, you know, like it, it's a fucking miracle. <laughs> um, so why not enjoy it while you can? Um, mm. And that, you know, like since I was literally 18 years old, like throwing parties in like horrible basements uh, that no one would show up to on like weekdays, <laughs> like four in the morning, um, being like sitting sad in a, in a bar basement, being like, why did nobody come? <laughs> Like I've been crying about rejection since I was eighteen. It's okay. Like it's part of the deal. Oh, you you've done that <laughs> like, too. If you want oh, uncertainty? You mean I'm not the only one? Oh, that's yeah. good to know. That's good to know. No, <laughs> don't worry. Like you good. I mean, if you wanted certainty, like become, I don't know, like literally anything but this. <laughs> <laughs> don't be an actor and don't be a DJ. It's okay. Yeah. You know, and if and if that is really upsetting to you, then like. I hear you. It's fucking painful, but like maybe this isn't the line of work because like your soul will be crushed basically daily. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, you know. But don't don't forget that like your heroes have also experienced tons of projection. Yeah, I think that's just something that's not really communicated that much on the outside, is it? There's lots of I'm I'm big and look at me check you know check me out playing to loads and loads of people, but you know that you don't people aren't talking about the 10 or 100 no's they got before they got to that point i mean or the the party that i played last week to exclusively bar staff <laughs> you know i mean then that was like for a, a brand so it's like whatever you know it's it, not my problem really but you know it doesn't that that part doesn't stop sucking it's just like hopefully the wins outweigh the painful losses and that like there's going to be a long time in any career where like your taste level and your output are not <laughs> near each other that you just kind of make horrible music for a while, but as long as you, or it's, it sounds bad, but there's maybe some good ideas, you know, that, and that's okay. Like, again, this is part of a process. Struggle is part of a process. Like growth sucks. <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't suck. It's, a, it's, it's, it's powerful, but it's very painful often. And that's okay. <laughs> that's not a problem. <laughs> What would you say is the biggest setback you've had in your career, and you know what did you do to learn? What did you do to overcome that, and maybe what did you learn from it? You know, it was very difficult to sell the practice of freedom, my my debut album, and I ended up um, leaving my management at the time over it because they were just like, "This is not sellable." <laughs> like you have to make a more commercial record, and I didn't believe that was true. I really believed in the music, um, and I. You know, it was very painful at the time because it was kind of coming from a place that felt like, you know, we're family, like a lot of messaging around, you know, the we kind of stick together, you know, um, 
And like at the end of the day, it's it's work, you know, and if the work is not working, then it was really important to to leave, but it was very painful to do so. And I remember like being in therapy and, you know, having worked on this body of work that felt really special and I was really proud of and being like, what if nobody cares? <laughs> and my therapist was like, yeah, then what? <laughs> like, it's like, what if, you know, like that's a very realistic possibility. And, and then I was like, he was like, what's your plan B? And I was like, well, I guess I'll move to the countryside and like train horses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, is that so bad? And I was like, no, it's actually kind of great. Um, <laughs> I mean, especially like if I can kind of f- change my cost of living to support that lifestyle. Um, and <laughs> guess what? We live in the countryside now. Um, mm. But this idea of like, I think having a kind of a relationship with music where it has an intrinsic motivation where it's like the music for its own sake is important. And then like everything else is secondary. And so if you need to be an artist with a day job in order to serve your music in practice, like that's, that's a possibility. Um, and, uh, and we'll actually give the practice more joy and you'll have, be able to have more security in your choices. And then also, I mean, like I was not particularly thrilled with how the record itself was, handled like I feel like there were so many things that could have gone better that could have been more organized that could have been better uh uses of time and money and that that was challenging and disappointing and a great 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 if painful teacher you know it's like I think the way through is unfortunately it's like as as annoyed I am as, as I am by this fact is like if you want it done right, do it yourself. <laughs> so, and that's why we have a record label, even though it's really small and we don't have much, that much money and we don't have that many followers. And we don't have that much power. Like it does give us basically a, um, a vessel to release things. And so like ultimately more and more, it feels like that that's the way to do what we want, how we want, when we want. Mm. And even if it takes more work <laughs> and requires, you know, if, like more organization on our part that like, there's nobody to blame if it doesn't work out. Mm. I had no idea that you left your management when, you know, in that process of your album coming out. Cause that's probably not something that people would expect. I imagine people would expect no, the opposite. It sucked. <laughs> almost like a bit, almost bittersweet, right? Because you've, you're making this amazing body of work that you're already proud of, but then the people who you've spent a number of years working together with aren't into it for whatever reason, which is kind of bittersweet. And I don't know what other phrase to call it really, but it must've been really, really tough. Yeah. It was very sad at the time. I think we're probably all better for it. And like, it was on, on good terms, you know, but like, uh, and I think that they were kind of coming to the same place. Like I was, I think we were both feeling kind of frustrated by not being able to like serve each other. Uh, like I wasn't able to kind of deliver the level of commercial uh, output that they wanted and they couldn't really see where I fit into a modern musical landscape. And um, like, that was a painful thing. It was like very much like a breakup. It was like a painful thing to accept, but also like very liberating to kind of be like, wait, like, actually uh i i do have value outside of this relationship as scary as that is and like 
you know, they're great at what they do, just not for me. Or, or they were really great for a time. And then it's, we stopped kind of, we, we stopped being on the same page and that's okay. Like at the end of the day, it's also like, it's called show biz, not show friends, <laughs> you know? There's some really valuable insights from that. And certainly I have a very similar experience in terms of management that, you know, it was great for a while and then it got to a point where it wasn't. And then we parted ways and it did feel there was emotions involved in, like you say, it's not show friends, it's show business. And um, it was the music business. And yeah, things, I think it's something I've learned to accept that now and it's not personal and it wasn't, clearly it wasn't right because it wasn't working so we're much better off yeah not together in many ways like a actual relationship right yeah but I mean again like because there's so much emotional atta- emotional attachment to uh what we make you know it's like our creative output our art our work is is all kind of in the same basket that it can be very scary to kind of jump ship or to feel like you're not seen or to feel like because somebody doesn't know quite how to handle it, that like you are not worthy of time or, or success or, and so, yeah, I mean, it's that, that part of the business I think is very difficult, but it's also um, at the end of the day, I think as artists, our job is to like take care of our work and to put it in the best positions to reach the people that it needs to reach who will appreciate it. And, and by appreciate, I mean, like I know, I think a lot about the artists whose music has like literally saved my life, you know, and, and I think as makers of music, it's our, it's our duty to, to best like make, like make the connection between the music and the fans. So like if the situation that you're in, in terms of business stuff is not serving that, then like it's time to move on. It's a good kind of litmus test. For sure. How much are you thinking then nowadays about strategy, about, you know, numbers of releases per year, next album? Are you strategy minded in that respect? No, (laughs) I probably should be more than I am. Like, I definitely have goals. And I think for me, the purpose of management at this point, which because I'm working with somebody else now, is um, is to kind of be a good be be good about delegating and kind of like ask for input on steps of like, how do we get from A to B? Like, what are our goals and how do we get there? And then can you, ha- the, what are the specific ways, actionable ways in which you can help me get there? Um, and like, this is what I don't know. Can you help me with this? You know, as opposed to kind of just be like, what should I do? Like, there's a very different dynamic. Um, and I think it's helpful also to like look at, I mean, as much as compare and despair is dangerous when looking at other artists, but to like look at artists who have the kind of success who are near, um, near and like proximal to like where you're at kind of career wise and being like, okay, so what are the wise decisions that they're making that are kind of like bringing them up a notch, you know, um, in terms of like they're touring or they're like, digital streaming output or like what are like kind of keep an eye on what's cool like what's what are what are the people whose careers I admire who are able to get away with doing weird shit Mm -hmm. um how are they doing that and kind of taking notes um and being very specific about what I think will work for me and what I don't think will work for me because also I think you know it can be helpful to be 
like realistic about some of this stuff about like what's actually going to be applicable to my career and like for instance i don't think like billy eilish is like <laughs> like a relatable target you know <laughs> um but at the same time kind of like don't hesitate to dream about where like where could this go and how how can i help it to get there because like at the end of the day i think it's very dangerous to be like i'm the product i'm the influencer like that's some bullshit like <laughs> knock that shit off but like it's more about so how do I kind of make the connection between the the music that I'm making and the fans that I think it will affect most um in in the most profound way and don't for at least for me because like my music's quite specific like don't worry too much about the rest I would love just to talk to you about your journey of sobriety because obviously you know you went sober as a a wee child <laughs> as a wee child as you know 20 year old um young lady so what's been your journey around that what's been your journey into sobriety and what lessons are you taking from that i mean i still am very active in the 12-step community because it's like literally like shown me how to live and given me a life i mean they they say it says it sounds cliche but it's truly like beyond my wildest dreams you know and uh if anybody who's listening is uh struggling with drug or alcohol addiction slide up my dms i'm available to talk about it and uh how i stopped i don't want to go into too much detail about that here but i will say that like i thought that it was gonna suck <laughs> i was like i guess like it was i got sober via intervention and i was just like well i guess if i don't want to die this is the way forward but i will probably have to be like in a nun <laughs> it was like an accountant like I was very concerned about how boring my life would be <laughs> and it's been really really uh really really good so can't can't recommend it enough if if that's uh an issue for anybody listening that's a generous offer that people can slide up in your dms because it's, it's something that lots of people are dealing with and uh and I'm really glad that you've overcome that and that you're in a good space now one day at a time baby <laughs> hmm. I think that's really important though isn't it it's one day at a time yeah, for most things. Yeah, for most things. I think yeah, same for making music and same for releasing music and 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 everything. Um, couple more questions for you, Louisa. We spoke about earlier about the artist's way. Are there any non-musical habits that you employ outside of the studio that help drive your creativity? So the studio is actually uh, the studio in which I'm recording. This is actually also the gym. Um, so I think that like, for me, exercise is a really good way to club test things. And also like as kind of a life practice, it helps keep anxiety down and depression down. Um, and it's just like, it's been a big part of, of recovery and, and just like informing me, like music is basically in, in a practice of embodiment. And so to be able to kind of have a physical practice also that, that like supports that is very important to me. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know, like the rest of it is like, I, I'm a fucking, like, I'm a very psycho rigid lunatic. <laughs> like I, there's, it's a lot of work to appear this chill. Um, and so there's like several kind of, I wouldn't say neurotic, but like very structured daily practices that I, uh, that I employ to kind of support my mental health and support my creative practice. And, uh, I mean, they're, they're pretty boring and they're very specific, <laughs> but what are they? What are they? I mean, like I, I, 
try and eat really clean because like sugar, too much sugar. And now living in the countryside, like caffeine used to be like the only drug I was like able to kind of have a great time with. And now it's like, makes me too anxious. <laughs> so like, you know, I'm fucking, I'm the most annoying. I'm like vegan, love sports. <laughs> like, you know, I ride horses like five to six days a week, like go running. I mean, it's it, like I have this depression light that's presently facing away from me. So it doesn't like burn my retinas while we talk to each other. <laughs> like there's so, there's so much stuff that like, I think I have, I don't know how people like function basically because I'm not, I wouldn't even say dysfunctional, but like in order to kind of feel okay in my body in, in the day, I have to do quite a lot of maintenance. And like mm. the more I can befriend that fact and like not fight against it and not kind of, I don't know, mistreat myself or my brain or my body with practices that don't serve my overall well-being, like the less my life is suffering. <laughs> So mm. that's cool. Like, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not a, a huge fan of suffering right now, unless I'm like very, uh, unless it's under my terms, you know? <laughs> yeah. I really like that though. Making friends with your daily routine, you know, it's kind of doing things to make yourself feel better. I have got a few things that I at least try to do on a daily basis. What are your things? And I certainly feel meditation, Awesome. morning pages, <laughs> ma making music, uh, eating healthily uh, and lots of exercise. And I'm not 100% consistent on all of those things every day. And I can really feel when I'm not doing those things that it really does have an impact on on how I feel about myself and, you know, and everything else that, that comes from that. And like you just said, making friends with your daily routine is nowadays for me at least essential and it wasn't the case you know in my more youthful days but it's something that as I've grown and matured that I really something that I find I'm finding more and more that I need to protect um, for myself and for my family and for my musical output totally and I mean I think also like for I don't know about you because it sounds like we have a very similar kind of lifestyle choices mm. I don't live in France with horses but <laughs> yet um this this idea of like I used to kind of pretend that I was much more low maintenance than I am <laughs> mm. and so kind of like be cagey or like I don't know uh like try, try and act more chill or like be more flexible than I actually am able to be around this stuff and like I find that the more self-acceptance I have around like what I need in order to feel sane and stable like the better my life is and the more I can actually enjoy those activities, the more I can be like, Oh, hooray. I get to work out. Oh, fantastic. I get to meditate. Oh, wonderful. Like I'm going to my 12 step meeting. <laughs> like it's, there's so much more sweetness and richness if I'm not kind of like pretending to be cool around it because it's like, it's none of it's that cool. It's just, uh, it's kind of necessary. And like, I actually do very much enjoy it. <laughs> mm, but it's cool to, you know, yoga and things like that. It really does make a difference. And it is, it's cool to feel good. It's cool to be kind to yourself. I think these things should be embraced more and more. And, you know, talk about business techno, those things are not talked about. They're not embraced at all. It's not even spoken about. So, you know, I really appreciate you being open and honest about that. And, you know, just uh, commend you for, you know, for, for doing that and being a, being a spokesperson for, for living better and, you know, being kind to yourself. Likewise, sir. 
Louisa, we're coming to the end of the interview and I'm so grateful that you spent so much time with us today. What are your three top tips for musicians, for people in the earlier stages of their career or just artists who want to do better? What are your three top tips? Oh, one, <laughs> the struggle is not bad. Like it's, a, it's an important and valuable path to walk. So if you're struggling, don't worry. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Two, don't be afraid to be weird. Like much like the struggle, <laughs> like that's actually precisely what we're looking for when we, when we sign new artists to RAR at least. And also when kind of listening to new music to play in the club or, or even to enjoy at home, I think it's like the more unique and special and almost like bizarre <laughs> it is, the more I, um, I love it and I'm, I'm drawn to it and I find it endearing and exciting. So don't be afraid to be weird and to like fuck it up and make mistakes. Like even if you make something that you, you consider perfect, like take it farther, fuck it up, <laughs> see what happens. You know, I probably won't be the last thing that you make, you know, and hopefully you can actually learn something via the, the mistake is in practice. I think Thirdly, and I'm seeing this more and more is slowly, very, very slowly, we get, um, we start to see more diverse uh, lineups and, and more like different kinds of faces and voices in, in the modern musical landscape is that like, if you feel like a sense of imposter syndrome, uh, making electronic music because you don't look like the people who are making electronic music traditionally, <laughs> uh, especially those who are terrifically successful at making electronic music. Like, don't worry, like the imposter syndrome exists because like this system was probably not made for you and like, fuck them. <laughs> like we need your voices. We really, really need what your experience has to, to say about this life, you know, because like that's the shit that will encourage other people to to try this and uh and also will help each other survive you know like to be able to hear your own story from somebody who's who's making this who might not again like look like everybody else who's doing this is is something priceless and profound so like we need your voices we need your experiences we need you out here like it's okay if you feel like an imposter fuck them love that how can people connect with you online I most reliably I'm on Instagram <laughs> at L O U I S A H H H and uh, at Twitter at L O U I S A H H H H H four H's. <laughs> I lost count, but there's four H's on Twitter because somebody already took Louisa. <laughs> ah, I was wondering that. Alas. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, new mixes and stuff will always be on SoundCloud, but. I feel like that that's a failing platform. So Instagram is probably the best for, for updates. Cool. And it's worth mentioning that you've got all your stuff available on Bandcamp, which you, you, you mentioned earlier. Yes. We love Bandcamp. Louisa, thank you so much for joining us today on the Open Door Talks podcast. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege and keep up the great work. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck with all of your daily practices and your baby. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast, so make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. <laughs>